Welcome to First Love Online Church with Nyral and O.C. Burnett. Flock is a ministry of First Love Fellowship whose mission is to win the church to Christ through unceasing prayer, intentional discipleship, and missional living. You can support the mission of First Love Fellowship by texting 918-300-4680 or by going to our website at wearefirstlove.com. Today, Pastor Naira will be discussing the reality of hell. Beware of ravenous wolves. I was reading a quote earlier and it said someone asked uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones a question saying, what does the church need in this day? What, what is needed right now in the body of Christ? And he said the, the answer from Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones was this. He said she needs to be absolutely certain about her message. The church. We need to get back to the position of Paul. Um, like to, to be determined to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. We must not be trying to preach politics or philosophy. We must get back to the New Testament message. And on top of that, the power and demonstration of the spirit moving without which even the preacher of the gospel will be. It, it's, it's in vain, even if the preacher of the gospel does not have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's it's so important that that we know that it's not going to work except in the in power and in a Holy Spirit and in much assurance. See, there's so much going on in the world right now that literally we, we, we've lost the centrality of our message. We've lost the urgency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's become important because. We're hearing everything out there these days, everything except the centrality of the message of the gospel. Like literally the only thing that can save us is that gospel, is that one message. And so few believers, so few Christians can even articulate that message or even has uh, so few Christians even have a relationship with that message and the power of that word. So how can we be absolutely certain about a message that we don't even recognize? And so we can see the message of the gospel expressed all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, the writings of Paul. You see the message of the gospel in Revelation. You see it everywhere. And, and so, so we, we hear it over and over again when we read scripture. But if the statistics are correct, most Christians aren't even reading the scriptures. And so because of that, we're in a situation where we have a generation of churchgoers. We have a generation of those who may be mistaken if they believe they actually know Jesus. And this is a vital issue for our times. And I'll tell you why it's a vital issue. It's because while we're struggling with the idea of, of, of knowing whether or not uh, uh, the idea of the gospel itself, we, we also struggle with the onslaught of false prophets, false apostles, false teachers. And a church without the gospel literally has eternity in the balance. Like, like if we don't have the gospel, if we don't know God, if how can we, according to First Thessalonians, it, it says it speaks here. Uh, hold, let me just turn there really quickly. 
because there's th this word here in the Thessalonians tells us something that I think in our day we need to take heed to very quickly and, and, and immediately. And it, it says here, it says here in first Thess second Thessalonians, rather uh, one verse six for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction. Those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So if we don't know the gospel, how can we obey it? If we don't know God, how do we know for sure that we are exempt from the penalty that is described in this verse? We are in a situation as a church where there is where souls that sit in pews are in the balance. And we make assumptions about the blood of Christ. We make assumptions about, about whether or not we're saved. We make assumptions about whether or not we are among those saints that Jesus blesses at the judgment seat of Christ. But even as we make those assumptions, false prophets abound and they are everywhere, all over the church. You'll see it in conferences. You'll see them online. You'll see them maybe even visiting where you are. And listen, this is, this is huge because right now the, 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 the false prophets and false teachers are a heap unto themselves people and unto themselves and not unto Jesus and we're gonna we're gonna talk a little about that but let's go back to second Peter I want us to go to second Peter because I want to read this admonishment to you and then we're going to talk about the destiny of false prophets and so it says here and let's be prepared to read this for a couple of minutes because I want you to get all of this sometimes the word of God has to just preach for itself I believe all the time. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Do you hear this? And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep, which means that the judgment that is due to them awaits them and it is not slumbering. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon a world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men for by, by, by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds then the lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment so number one the lord knows how to rescue the righteous from temptation he knows how to rescue the godly away from temptation but along with that he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed, 
they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasonable animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in this, the, the, the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it as a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions and as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, a heart trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received the rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved, for whom the black darkness has been reserved." For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment commanded unto them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. This is where we talk about false prophets. Listen, a couple uh, last week we talked about beware, beware of ravenous wolves. We have a serious problem in the church today where people are being deceived and drawn away from the gospel of Christ. And many are being led astray because of their own self-centeredness, because of their own self-will. And we said last week, if you want to put false prophets out of business, all you have to do is abandon your own self-centeredness. If your life is hid with God in Christ, if Jesus is everything to you, if serving him is the theme of your life, the false prophet serves nothing to you. The false apostle has nothing to offer you. Those who would try to speak falsely and deceive you, they have nothing to give you. You're free from them if your focus is Jesus. But if your focus is not on Jesus, but it is focused on your trial, if it's focused on your tribulation, if it's focused on your money, if it's focused on your career, if it's focused on your future. And I'm not saying that those things are bad things, but they ought not be your focus. Everything we do in life ought to be in the light of who Jesus Christ is and the mission of Christ in your life. If you're seeking after other things, if you're looking after other things, then you're destined to failure. You're destined. You, you, are like, you are like red meat in the eyes of the false prophet, in the eyes of those ravenous wolves that will come among us. They're seeking people like you. They're looking for people who have needs. They're looking for people who are focused on their needs. They're looking for people who are self-centered and wanting only what belongs to them. Just as Paul said in the scripture, he says, all seek their own and not the things that are Christ's. 
It is the wolves who look for such people in order to deceive them. James even says you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask according to, to your own lust that you might spend it on your own lusts. See, even people who pray very often get caught up in this disease in the church of self-centeredness and the false prophets are ready to pounce. The ravenous wolves among us are ready to pounce and such ravenous wolves, they come from inside the church and they come from outside the church. And I'm here to give fair warning. Get your eyes off of yourself and turn your eyes to God. Turn your eyes to the mission of Christ. Turn your eyes unto what God would have you do. Because this is what God is calling us to. He's calling us to such a great commission that it would be worth us giving up our very lives in order to fulfill it. In order to do exactly what Jesus told us to do in this earth. But oh, so many of us, we ignore that. We ignore that in exchange for luxuries and the pursuit of luxury. We, do, we, we, we pursue after the things that we want and desire in our own heart. When we ought to be looking for the heart of God for everything. This morning... In the light of the ministry of the false prophet and what Peter said about false prophet prophets telling us that their end is their destruction, telling us that they are reserved for the darkness. I want to talk about the darkness. I want to talk about what happens after a person dies, whether you are the redeemed of the Lord or if you are wrapped up in the darkness of our day. And this is serving as a warning to the church not to be wrapped up in the darkness of our day. So let's go to Luke chapter 16. We're talking about the rich man and Lazarus. It says here in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Then there was a poor man named Lazarus and he was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his source. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers and in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophet, let them hear them. But the rich man said, no, father Abraham, like, like the law and the prophets is not enough. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophet, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. I find it interesting that the word of God, according to, to the rich man in this story, the word of God alone was not enough. Like for his five brothers to, to be saved, it wasn't enough for the word of God to save them. They also needed to see 
a miracle of somebody rising from the dead. And it's very much a picture of today's church where the word of God is no longer enough, where we need this special word of prophecy or we need to see this special miracle or we need to see the signs and the wonders before we believe. And I want to tell you this morning that if, if the word of God is not enough to bring saving faith to your heart and soul, then perhaps you need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. Because we do indeed walk by faith and not by sight. See, there is so much power in this word. There is so much power there. Plus the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to your heart. Listen, we don't need to see a miracle. We just need the Holy Spirit to convict hearts. We need to be absolutely persuaded of our message. We need to, as a church, once again, be convinced that there is no other name under heaven whereby which men can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ, the son of the almighty God. We've lost touch with this. We've lost touch with the gospel of Christ. We've lost touch with the idea that Jesus alone saves it has nothing to do with whether or not the anointing in my hand touches your forehead. It has nothing to do with how accurate my prophecy over you is. It has nothing to do with the quality of my altar call, with the throngs of people standing in the front with their hands raised up facing me. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to the hearts of people. Yes, even Christian people, even churchgoers. It has to do with the Holy Spirit touching the hearts of people and bringing them under conviction. The conviction that there is no other name under heaven whereby which men can be saved. This rich man he didn't think that Moses and the prophets would be enough. This rich man said, no, that's not enough for my brothers. They need to see a miracle. They need to see someone rising from the dead. But I'll tell you what. After this entire story ended, someone did rise from the dead. Jesus Christ, the son of God, our risen savior. And because of the hardness of men's hearts, people still did not repent. Because of the hardness of the hearts of this generation, people still do not repent even though our Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. There's a few things we have to understand about this scene. First of all, this is not a parable. It's not a parable at all, unlike every other parable that Jesus spoke. Unlike the parables, this story speaks of real people. As in, Abraham is a real person mentioned in scripture and quoted in this story. Now, if this were a parable, then that would mean that Jesus was just giving a, a figurative story and putting words in Abraham's mouth that Abraham never said. But that's not what's happening here. No, this is someone speaking here. The, the story of Lazarus also, a person is named. None of the other parables name anyone. None of the parables of Jesus have anyone's name associated with them. No, friends, this is not a parable. This is a real story about real people and real events that you will soon see. And if you don't repent, I pray that, that, that you find time to repent now of your sins because you don't want to fall on the wrong side 
of this horrible, horrible reality. The place where they were, the rich man and Lazarus, is a place, the place of the dead, the place that is called in scripture Hades. Inside of Hades, according to the text here in the scripture, there is a place of comfort, which is Abraham's bosom, and then there is a place of torment and death. Lazarus was on a place of comfort in Abraham's bosom. The rich man was in a place of torment and death. And between the two of them in Hades was this great gulf, this great chasm that separated the two of them. Now, in a place of comfort in Abraham's bosom, the, 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 the Lazarus got there by angelic escort, according to Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 20, uh, 22. Uh, Luke chapter 16, rather, 22. He got there by angelic escort. Also, it seems that in this story, if you notice, Lazarus had nothing to say. He did not say a word. The entire interaction was between the rich man and Abraham. Also, as you know, in chapter 16, verse 25, it tells us that this is a place of comfort, meaning that this is a place of rest. This is the good place within a place of the dead. Now, we're going to get somewhere regarding all of this, okay? Um, because there's a lot to speak of here. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go really quickly over to the torment side because on the other side of this great gulf, it seems that the people here, including the rich man, were able to see paradise. Could you imagine? Could you imagine being in a place of torment and death and at the same time know that you missed the place of paradise and comfort, that you missed that place, but you can see the reward. for so The rich man was able to look over and speak to Abraham from far away, which meant that he knew not only his torment, but he knew the extent to which he missed everything that he could have had. Now, before I go on, let, let's talk about this rich man. What, what made him evil? What made him, what made him worth this torment and this, this death? What happened is it says in the text here that he habitually dressed in purple, fine linen, lived in splendor every day. But Lazarus, it says, was laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. So Lazarus had nothing, covered with sores, apparently near death. He probably looked like he was near death because the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Most people would push a dog away. It doesn't even say he did that. It just says in the next verse, now the poor man died. What's strange is that everything looked like Lazarus was about to die, covered with sores. But nothing in the rich man's story looked as though he was about to die. It looked as though the rich man was going to live a long, healthy life. But right there in the same two verses, I'm sorry, in the exact same verse, both the rich man and the poor man died. The poor man had warning that he was going to die. The rich man, none whatsoever. Let that be a sobering reality for we who are in the church, that death comes knocking on people's doors with no warning whatsoever. How many of us have no clue that this night your soul may be required of you?
And while you are running after the words of the false prophet, or if you are a false prophet yourself and you are giving these words out to people and lying wonders and miracles of all kinds, understand that your soul hangs in the balance that you will not live forever. Do not deceive yourself. Do not deceive yourself. This is a fair warning. So they both died in this place of torment and death. Jesus describes it in Mark chapter 9, 43, as a place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says this three times, where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched, where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. There are some people today, and it's becoming a, a very popular message in the churches where people say there is no hell, that hell is not the fire and brimstone that everybody talks about. Well, then you must be thinking then that the words of Jesus mean little to you. Because according to this verse here in Mark chapter 9, 43 up to 50, it tells us three times where the worm dies not and a fire is not quenched. And Jesus calls this place hell. Hell, ladies and gentlemen, is a very real place. Hell is a very present reality. It indeed is a place of torment and death. And listen, you know, sometimes I, I hear people just as a pastor, I'll hear people say, well, I, I, I'm doing my best to forgive. I'm doing my best to show mercy. I'm doing my best to love. But, you know, loving people is hard. Well, when you consider the, 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 the torment of hell, it ought to add to your soul an urgency to get this thing right before God. There ought to be in your heart an urgency to say, okay, I'm having trouble forgiving, but I also know that I don't want to suffer the torment and flames of hell by way of church going. That if you really want to be free, I want you to understand. We often say that Jesus saves us from our sins and he does. But I would want you to consider that perhaps he's also saving you from God. Perhaps he's saving you from the wrath of God. I hear people often say, you know, hell is only the absence of God. It's a terrible place. And yes, indeed, you are absent from his favor. You are absent from his loving kindness. Yes, that is true. But hell, indeed, by fact, is a place of the absolute presence of God who was all knowing and all present. God is omnipresent, which means that indeed in hell itself, the presence of God is there. The psalmist David said, if I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there. Which means that if God indeed is in hell, he is there in the fullness of his wrath, in the fullness of his indignation, in the fullness of his fury. God indeed is there. And in that place is where his absolute righteous anger is executed upon those who don't know him and who do not obey the gospel of Christ. The place where the worm does not die and a fire is not quenched. Take zero chances on anyone that tells you that hell is not real. And you'd better indeed 
take this message that I'm giving you today with the sobriety that it deserves. You can debate me all you want. Many people in prior generations have debated the, the issue of whether or not a hell exists, but every single one of them have died in their sins. And now in this day, they know indeed that there is a hell. There is. Hell, according to scripture, in Matthew chapter 25, and I'm gonna turn there really quickly. It says here, Matthew chapter 25, that hell is a place that is prepared for the devil and his angels. See, hell was never prepared for you. That's Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed ones into eternal fire. Some people say, well, they, it's a myth. It's Dante's Inferno that gives the image of, of a fiery hell. Actually, no, it is Jesus who gives the image of a fiery hell. It says here, accursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. See, hell was never prepared for you. Hell was always prepared for the devil and his angels. You do not have the ability to thrive in an atmosphere of hell. You do not have the ability to thrive in an atmosphere of hell fire. It was, the, it was prepared for the angels. Uh, 2 Peter 2.4 says, if God did not spare angels, we just read this. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgments. It, it says it right there. Like, this is what God prepared for the devil and for angels. Let's turn really quickly also to Jude. Because Jude says much the same thing. In Jude chapter 6, I mean Jude chapter 1, because there's only one chapter in Jude. But in Jude verse 6, it says here, And the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Then, of course, Revelation also speaks to this idea that hell is for the devil and his angels by saying in Revelation chapter 19, it says here, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So see, people often say, you know, the, the fire and brimstone is all Dante's Inferno. It's all fiction. Well, actually in scripture here, it says fire. It says brimstone. So yes, this morning you are getting a fire and brimstone message, but you're getting this message as a warning. Understand that God does not want anyone to go to hell. The scripture tells us that it is not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And even so, as we make the case that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, it is indeed God himself who sends people to hell. God himself. Says in, it says in Matthew chapter 10, and I'm turning there right now. We have a, a lot of scriptures to go through. But in Matthew chapter 10, it tells us, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to both destroy body and soul. In hell. Second Thessalonians chapter one. I'm going to go there real quick also because you have to hear this. If you don't get this, I, 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 I fear for your soul. And I would not love you if I did not tell you 
that God is giving us fair warning here. Don't run after false prophets because their destiny is this very darkness with which I speak. Their destiny is the very hell that I'm speaking of. In fact, in Revelation, when we hear about the false prophet, he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. But today's false prophets operate in the exact same spirit, in a spirit of deception, in order to turn you away from Christ, in order for you to walk in the agenda, the antichrist agenda, the self-centered, self-agended uh, uh, agenda that this world is going towards like a freight train that cannot be stopped. And the false prophet wants you to go in the exact same direction. And I'm not talking about the false prophet of Revelation. He's coming soon. I'm talking about the false prophets that are in the church today. I'm talking about the ones that are walking around among us in this very day and age. The ones you can easily find on YouTube or Facebook. The ones you can easily find at your conferences and conventions that may even be in your very city. The ones that are telling you that your husband is coming, your wife is coming, you're getting the big fancy car, the great career, the money is coming to you. Don't listen to these men. Don't listen to these women. Turn your eyes to Jesus and keep your eyes on the agenda of Christ in this age. There are souls hanging in the balance right now. There are people who are dying in their sins. And the only answer that they have that can possibly give remedy to their fallen condition is the gospel of Christ, which you should know. The only agenda we have is Christ and him crucified. That's what our lives ought always to be about. It says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe for our testimony to you was believed. See, at his coming, it'll be a terrible day for those who don't know God and who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but for those who do, it is a glorious day. Now, back to Lazarus, back to the rich man. I find it interesting that in this story, everybody involved is named except the rich man. You've got Lazarus who is named You've got Abraham who was named, but Jesus did not even bother giving the rich man a name, just rich man. He didn't bother mentioning what his name was, just rich man. You wonder, why didn't he do that? Why didn't, why didn't he say the rich man's name? And the reason why is because in the eyes of eternity, the one who suffers an eternal hell is not even important. They're nameless. They're forgotten. In fact, the scripture says, Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Name not even mentioned. See, the rich man had no name because it wasn't worth mentioning. Only Lazarus. Only Abraham. It is from this place According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this one place, the place of the dead, Hades, which is split in two, one place of comfort, one place of torment and death. Hades is split in two 
according to the text in this story, with a great gulf between them. The place of comfort, it is from here that the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 tells us that, and also 50 to, 50 to 52, you can read all of First Corinthians 15 will tell you all about that. Also, Romans chapter 8, 22 speaks of the idea of the redemption of our body. Also, in 2 Corinthians, it tells us that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, speaking of the works that we do. It says here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says here, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are at in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up in life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. God is calling us to this wonderful place. It says here that God will judge our good and bad works. Uh, I'm going to go really quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because he, was, he made us for this. He made us for this holy habitation. He made us to be transformed. It says here in verse 10 of chapter 3, 1 Corinthians, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it. The day, when the scripture speaks of the day, it's talking about the day of the Lord. Because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Your work is either gold, silver, and precious stones, or your work is wood, hay, and stubble. And this is for the saints. This place of comfort speak, spoken of here, this is the judgment for the saints. It says here, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So God will indeed judge the works of church people, Christians, born again, loving God, the redeemed of the Lord. God will judge those people's works. He will judge our works. Your work may be gold. My works may be silver or precious stones. But if your work is wood, hay, and stubble, they'll be burned away. You will have learned the reality of a life of so much wasted time. But you, your soul will be saved if you belong to Jesus. Now on the other side of this chasm, the side of the rich man, the side of torment and death, it is a whole entirely different story. Because on that side, it tells us that this is the side prepared for the devil and his angels, and yet God himself sends people there. 
This is the place where, according to scripture, the second death occurs, where both the place of the dead and Hades itself is cast into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20. It says here, I'll turn here really quickly. You have to excuse me. I'm using a real Bible and not my, my computer Bible. But it says here, then I saw a great white throne. This is not the judgment seat of Christ. This is the great white throne. People who are in comfort on the comfort side of the place of the dead, they go to the judgment seat of Christ. That's when the rewards are doled out. And oh, what a day that's going to be for each and every one of us who know the Lord. But if you don't know the Lord, for you there is reserved a great white throne judgment. According to Revelation chapter 2011, this is a separate judgment. It says here, the throne a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened and it is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades came uh, gave up the dead which were in them. There it is. So this place of torment, this place of the dead, is emptied out much like by way of rapture the place of comfort is emptied out you learn about that in in first thessalonians where it says the lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trump of god and the dead in christ shall rise first and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the lord in the air and there shall we ever be with the lord that side gets raptured unto glory but this other side this place of torment it gets its own rapture but is a rapture unto judgment and eternal punishment it says the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades once emptied out completely because by now everybody's gone. Death and Hades, the entire place of the dead, were thrown into the lake of fire, which tells us, ladies and gentlemen, I wouldn't have to worry much about hell because hell itself gets thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So hell and death get thrown into the lake of fire. Earlier on, you'll see that Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire. And now every single lost soul who has rebelled against God and shaken their fist in the hands of the almighty one is also thrown into the lake of fire. Everyone. Friends, we have much to say about this. But I want to give a fair warning that if you follow the way of the false prophet, then you yourself will suffer the same fate. I am asking you, turn your eyes to Jesus. Give your life and your heart to the agenda of Christ. Give your entire self, as Romans chapter 12 says, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Argue with me all you want. But there is nothing that I'm telling you this morning that is going to drag you into the wrong place. Because if you give yourself wholly to Jesus, avoiding a place of eternal torment, 
Your soul will always be in good hands. You will be in a place of comfort, like the scripture says, the place of Abraham's bosom. A place where from there you will be at the judgment seat of Christ in order to enter into a place of eternal glory. But if you indeed decide to disbelieve the gospel of Christ, if you decide to disbelieve this stern warning churchgoer about the realities of hell, then you've deceived yourself. You've deceived yourself. Take this warning with all of its urgency because the false prophets and the wolves among us would have you to ignore this. But I love you too much. And God especially loves you too much for you to not hear this warning and this invitation. The scripture tells us this. And then we're going to close. It says in Titus chapter 2:11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I'll let the word of God preach for itself. Let's move out of the way and allow the word of God to speak its own words. Because what you just heard in your hearing was the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you heard in your hearing just now in Titus chapter 211 is exactly what we ought to be preaching and telling people giving them firm warning and admonishment to come to Jesus, know the Lord, walk in his ways, love him again, be discipled, attach yourself to a, a, a person or, or, or church or a ministry that's actually going to help you to grow in Christ and not just come to church every week and listen to sermons. Grow in Christ, know the Lord, give yourself wholly to him, pray, seek his face, Let's fall in love with Jesus again. Let's return to our first love. Let's no longer abandon him, but embrace him with every fiber of our being, knowing that he's embraced us also. Jesus loves you. Don't ever forget that. And because he loves you, he's given you every possible opportunity to escape the flames of hell. But how shall we escape those very flames if we neglect so great a salvation? No, let's take it seriously and follow after the will of God for his glory and for your salvation. Amen. Father, in Jesus name, I pray right now, Lord God, that everybody in my hearing would take heed to this message. That although ravenous wolves are among us, and we'll talk about them some more next week. Although ravenous wolves are among us, that the Lord our God is with us, that the grace of the Holy Spirit draws us every single day to know the Lord. I pray that conviction settles in the hearts of people, even church people, to know the Lord, to come to Jesus, a full relationship with him, for the glory of God the Father that they would proclaim Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus is king. Jesus is victorious. In your name, Lord, I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I pray that the knowledge of God increase in you every single day. And so you have the opportunity right now to say yes to Jesus. If that's you, don't play any more games. Today is the day to say yes. For those, the rest of you, we have a lot to do in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have so much preaching of this word to do, so much bearing of good news to give, and we need your help to do it. And if you would like to support us, you can do so. There's a, there should be a QR code right up there on your screen. Otherwise, the phone number is 918, what's the number for? Oh, 918-304-680, 918-304-680, if you'd like to support the vision and ministry of First Love Fellowship so that we can preach the gospel and not only preach the gospel to the lost, but win the church to Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Your generous support enables us to continue to fulfill our mission to win the church to Christ through unceasing prayer, intentional discipleship, and missional living. You can offer additional financial support by texting 918-300-4680 or by going to our website at wearefirstlove.com. Until we meet again, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior. Always remember your first love. He